So he was uh, he was sentenced to thirty years, and was was serving that time in a prison outside of Cuna, Idaho. And on Easter Sunday, three years into his uh, his term, he escaped. Yeah. Now there's an official report about this that said that he was able to cut through the wire and escape like that. However, that report has largely been debunked. And Ada County actually opened an investigation in 2001 to look into how he actually escaped. And the current consensus is that he walked out the front door with a group of visitors. And to do that, you've got to have help. You've got to end up in a position to do that. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. In the United States, there are about 15.2 million hunters. That's how many hunting licenses we sell in the country. And they spend around $21 billion per year, which breaks down to an average of $2,800 per hunter. Now, we need to be really smart about how we spend that money. You can't spend it on stuff that's going to break. Otherwise, you have to buy something else again, and you end up costing yourself even more. We also need to be smart about how much weight we carry in our packs, because that's a serious limiting factor. One way to remove about five pounds out of your pack without sacrificing your ability to find animals is to get rid of your spotting scope and tripod. Now, there's a time and a place for those things, and I carry both of them a lot. But if I need to go lightweight, I'm going to carry stabilized binoculars. And the best stabilized binoculars I have ever used are from Sig Sauer. They are the Zulu 6, and they just came out with a new pair called the Zulu 6 HDX. I use the 12 power magnification model. They weigh 21.5 ounces, and they have two modes of stabilization. So you throw the lever forward once, and that's going to stabilize the image. If you turn it off and turn it back on again, that's going to stabilize it even more. And I'm not kidding. It is more stable than if you're glassing from a tripod. It is absolutely incredible. You're going to be able to see stuff at just incredible distances and really break it down. Like you're going to be able to tell the difference between a Billy and a Nanny mountain goat at a mile. You're going to be able to actually see if there's a kicker coming off that four by four muley that just popped up over the hill. They work great at early and last light. They work great at highlight. They fit really well in my hands. Like this was one of the first products that I asked SIG to make when I started working with them. And to no surprise, they were already on it. They were way ahead of me. But this is a really good piece of gear. I highly encourage you look into it. You can go to SIGSour.com. Look for the Zulu 6 HDX. Comes in a few different magnification settings. But the one that I like the best is the 12 power. Check it out. Before we talk about the crime... I think it's important to do our best to understand the place, which is the Owyhee. The Owyhees. Plural. Yeah, refers to the mountains. Okay. And the whole country. 
the river, the canyon, the Owyhees. I mean, it takes in a vast, vast area. If you say the Owyhee, you're referring to the reservoir. Mm. Or the um, county. Or the county in Idaho, yeah, yeah. Um, but if you say the Owyhee, you're not referring to the county. If you refer to the county, you just say Owyhee County. But when people say the Owyhee, that's the reservoir. If you want to get into the vastness of the Owyhee Mountains and the Owyhee Desert, um, you refer to it as the Owyhees. How were the Owyhees named? Um, I think it was in the 1820s. Fur company come through an expedition from a fur company, and it was either Hudson Bay or Northwest Fur Company, and um, I think it was McKinsey uh, come down through there, and they had uh, either two or three Hawaiians with them, supposedly, and they asked the Hawaiians to break off. They were there on that Snake River, Malheur River. Uh, where all those rivers come together, Idaho-Oregon border. And uh, my guess is they were at the Owyhee River where it dumps into the snake, and they asked the Hawaiians to explore that, and we will come back and meet you in a year. In a year's time, um, when they come back, they found their camp, but the Hawaiians were never found, and so the Hawaiians, the Hawaii, you know, just kind of melted into Hawaii, and that's what they call the country, and that's what it's been named ever since. You spent much time there? Yeah. I spent a lot of time there. Um, trapped that country in the Oregon southeast corner, uh, Malheur County. Um, that's where I grew up. Family's been there since 1880s. Um, I ranched there. And uh, started as a government trapper in Jordan Valley down in the southern half of Malheur County. And uh, Malheur County is just a little over 10,000 square miles. And uh, the Owyhees uh, run right along the Oregon-Idaho border. Most of them are on the Idaho side, uh, but the fingers of those run into the Oregon side. And the Owyhee River begins its origin in Oregon, Idaho, Nevada corner, and um, out there at the Duck Valley Indian Reservation is where it starts, and then she comes across those high desert plateaus and breaks off into uh, a rim in which carved out that canyon in uh, the North Fork, Middle Fork, South Fork of the Owyhee, and uh, and then it runs north all the way to uh, the Snake River by Adrian, between Adrian and this Oregon. It's a phenomenal canyon, and I've spent, I've hunted lion there, um, coyotes, uh, spent a lot of time out there. Uh, Big area. No guys that have died out there, um, been hurt out there, lost out there. It's a neat country. Pretty densely populated with people. (laughs) No. Um, You could literally, if you know how to do it, you uh, you could hit Jordan Valley. And get on a dirt road and probably run to Reno, Nevada and never, never be on pavement, you know, or, or even down to Ely. You could go as far as you wanted to go on as many tanks of gas on just a two-track dirt roads if you knew which ones to take. And never, only people you're going to run into is if it's maybe a hunter or cowboys. Um, and that's about it. It's in, in, in incredibly 
uh, wide open space. So if you're a guy who doesn't fit into society and you want to hide someplace, not a bad spot to pick. I'd have to say that that very southeast corner of that country of Idaho, Oregon, that southwest corner of Idaho, southeast of Oregon, that Nevada country that ties into, it's some of the most unpopulated ground, I think, that's that's in uh, possibly in the United States. I mean, there's probably sections of Nevada, I'm sure, but I, th- I think it would rival in the top. Yeah, you you could be a you could disappear. You could be a twelve hour drive from a Starbucks pretty easily. <laughs> I'm gonna say you're about eighteen to twenty hours from a Starbucks to yeah. get down into that corner. It's tough. I mean, it's it's an all day ordeal to get down in there. And the closest town, which is going to be hundreds of miles away, might have six people in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, you got to figure, you know, what services are offered, and you're looking at okay. You always pack two tires, you know, and your spare tire wasn't a donut tire. You know, it was a, it was a heavy sidewall belted, you know, uh, Toyo probably, but, uh, you just didn't go out in that country, uh, usually with a single spare tire because you're going to end up walking back. Yeah. You know? So 1950 in Virginia is where Claude Dallas was born. That's the when and the where. Yep. And his family moved to the Midwest, and that's where he started really wanting to, to be an outdoorsman and learn how to trap and hunt. And then he hitchhiked his way west. And, you know, I, I think that there's a pivotal moment in there that sort of created what he would later become, which was that there was a draft notice for Vietnam that was sent to his family's address but he was cowboying in the Alvord Desert in southern Oregon, wasn't in contact with his family, and uh, he was arrested by the FBI three years after that draft notice and a full year after the draft had ended in 1973. So the war is over with, but he still has this warrant out there. He gets arrested, says, I had no idea that I was ever drafted, and it couldn't be proved that he was aware of this draft notice. So he wasn't charged with it. But I think that that is, that's a defining moment in the beginning or solidification of his mistrust of government. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. That's where that mistrust started. That's that bad taste, that incident. That is the pivotal point to possibly what happened, you know, um, down the road. Um, and I can't, you know, you say, you know, somebody that didn't get along in society, I could go down. And th- I think I fit into society pretty good. I'm kind of a loner. You know, I mean, I've got all my friends and people and stuff, but I could go into the Hawaii's to that desert and, and be very happy. And then you throw, if the FBI knocked on my door and arrested me, I can see how this thing snowballed. I really can. Yeah. So we fast forward a little bit. Uh, he's 31 years old, 1981, and he's living off grid as he has for a long time. And more than likely he was poaching. I think that, that that much is clear that he was, he was illegally taking wildlife. 
um, although there is a little bit of controversy around that. Tell me a little bit about why that might have been controversial about the Bobcats in particular that he was trapping. Well, he was down on the on the on the forty five, which is in that southeast corner of Oregon. What is the forty five? It's a ranch. It's probably. It, I don't know if it. It probably runs into Nevada. I would imagine that it does. Maybe even to Idaho. Maybe it runs into three states, but it's insanely remote. I know guys that have leased the 45, and they say, you know, it takes all day just to get there. And the process of going in and out of there in a grazing season will destroy your gooseneck, horse trailer, stock trailer. Um, Guys that I know are pretty tough. The 45 have whipped them just to get there. And so he was trapping there, and his camp was just, you know, north of the Nevada border. And I believe that the Nevada bobcat trapping season was open. And he had his camp in Idaho. And I could see how this could happen too, where you've got the good camp spot. Maybe you got a south slope to pick up that winter sun. You're down out of the wind in a hole. It's the best place in and out and around uh, to trap Nevada and or to trap to Idaho. And so in Oregon. So just because his camp may, you know, was in, in Idaho, but if he was trapping Nevada, I could see where, you know, that could become an issue. But I don't know if he had a trapping license for Nevada or right. even Idaho for that matter. Right. You know, so if that's the case, yeah, he's poaching, you know, he's living off of meat that he's killing and he's trapping two different states that he doesn't have a trapper's license for. Yeah. And the the two game wardens that went down there didn't initially go there for him. They were going after some sage grouse poachers on this ranch. And they'd they'd gone down. These two game wardens were named Connolly Elms and Bill Pogue. And they'd gone down to uh to ass- assess the situation with these sage grouse poachers. And as they were about to leave the ranch, the wife of the rancher said, Oh, and by the way, there's this guy named Claude Dallas. He's got a camp out here, and we think he's up to no good. So uh, somebody that had that had swung by his camp had seen some some bobcats and a deer hanging, and you know it just didn't didn't add up quite quite as legal. And some of the people that I've talked to who spent time with with Claude Dallas right beforehand had a bad feeling about the guy. And this is something that comes up often in the story. Some people uh, liked him, considered him a friend, and other people were really uneasy around him. Agreed. So he he's going to carry this controversy into other aspects of his life. I find that interesting. But anyways, these game wardens now are obligated to go out and check in on his camp. And what happens next? If I remember right... They uh, they knew where his camp was from the folks at the 45. I think it was the folks at the 45 that had mentioned him. And so they went out there, and um, I'm guessing Claude was out trapping. He was coming back, and he met him on the rim. And if it was on the rim and the camp was below, um, I don't know if there was a road down to the camp or if it was, you know, cow trail, horse trail, and those guys walked down. But anyway, he met him on the rim. 
They asked him some questions, supposedly, about bobcat trapping and some illegal deer. And I think even at that point, he admitted to the illegal deer, but not the illegal bobcats. And so, and to me, this is where, this is where another momentum starts of that snowball, that avalanche that starts is, they're going to go down to his camp and Bill Pogue goes back to his pickup and grabs handcuffs. Hmm. And that was, that was, that was, I can remember jurors talking about that later, that that was, ooh, why would you do that? And to me, that's, that's a, a, a huge warning sign for Claude Dallas. You know, this is a game violation. You know, it's not like it's a bank robbery or a murder or, you know, a kidnapping or anything like that. This is a game violation. Um, Which I, I don't know how Idaho works, but all game violations in Oregon are a crime. An arrestable crime? I think it depends. Uh, I, I don't know about, I, I, I shouldn't say because I don't know about whether you can be arrested for it. But, you know, today officers carry handcuffs on their belt. Like that's, that's part of their deal. Um, so it wouldn't be, it would be more alarming to me if like somebody didn't have their, their stuff together well enough to like have all their kit on them and had to go back. But I'm assuming that, that times were different and these guys were running a little bit more slick. Maybe so. But even then the, the, I mean, but the the optics of that. Yeah. The, I mean, doesn't that an aggressive act on Pogue's part? To say, I'm going to get handcuffs because I may haul you back up here and take you in. And to me, that says, fight. You know, this is a confrontation. That's where it starts. Yeah. Yeah. You know, probably the temperature of that conversation dictated to Pogue that, like, this guy might become belligerent and we might need to arrest him. Could be. You know, it... If I'm just trying to look at this thing from the widest lens that I can, uh, but anyways, that's definitely an, an indication. If if you're in in Claude's situation, you've got this distrust of government. You've been arrested before, where you felt like you were wronged. You've been living out here by yourself, and now it feels like it is happening again. These mm-hmm. guys are gonna these guys are gonna take me away from all this. And it's not necessary. I mean, I that's the way I feel about it. And you got to understand that the remoteness of this camp, it's not five minutes from town. I mean, I've, it was on the south end of Bull Basin and I've been on the north end of Bull Basin and I did not want to go any further. I'd had enough. I knew the 45 was down there. I knew that's where Claude Dallas incident. And I wanted to see it. I wanted to, to, to get the feel of it, to see what it was. And I quit. I, I'd had enough. And I mean, it is as rocky of a two track road to get out there as you can imagine. And so good Bobcat country. Phenomenal. And, no competition. That's the thing about trapping bobcats. You got to find a place where you're not stepping on somebody else's ground. They're not doing that to you. They're not stealing from you and some, a place that may have not been trapped out. So yeah, phenomenal bobcat ground. And I mean, that's the thing I respected about Claude Dallas. He would push and he pushed into an area where he wasn't bothering anybody. He wasn't going to be trapping on top of anybody. And he went to a place where even even myself have dreamed of trapping bobcats in such a remote area. You know, that's for a, a good trapper. That's that's something you look for your whole life to try and find a 
say a honey hole like that to where it's just you, man. And, um, and, 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 and the country, you know, and the, and the animals you're pursuing. So they go down to the camp. Yeah. Um, and, and Claude admitted, I think upon the rim that, yeah, I've, I've got a deer in camp and I think probably that would be the bigger offense of what the bobcats are hanging up. But I think that anyway, he admitted to the deer, they get down there and they see the deer, the deer's hanging there and he's got the tent up and there, there probably is a discussion like, look, these are Nevada cats and, but he's in Idaho and, if he doesn't have, there's a fourth man present. There's a fourth man, Jim Stevens. Jim Stevens was that from that Paradise, Paradise Valley country, uh, denial country. Um, my in laws knew Jim Stevens. You know, my in laws knew Claude Dallas. Um, a lot of people I know knew knew them. And so Jim, he would ferry groceries and supplies into Claude. Uh, I don't know every couple of months, and he liked it. He liked to hunt arrowheads. And so um, he liked to poke around. He would haul groceries out, hunt arrowheads, look around for a while, and then, you know, head back out. And so Jim Stevens was off in the distance. And uh, he did not witness the confrontation. But from my understanding, from what I've heard, is that Poke says, well, I need to take you in. I'm going to take you in. And Claude Dallas had horses there, stock there that needed to be fed. Um, Jim Stevens couldn't stay. He was an elderly man. And so that was going to put his stock, his whole camp at risk. And I think that Claude Dallas said, you know, I don't understand what's going on here. Why would you do that? Who's going to take care of my stock? And in my understanding, the whole conversation was between Pogue and Dallas, and ultimately, Pogue said, you can go the easy way, or you can go the hard way. And to me, that's that third step in this avalanche. Because when you mention the hard way, to to somebody, say, of Claude Dallas's thinking, now you're really saying fight. Hard way means to take you down. You know, it's not like, I'll, I'll handcuff you myself. Ultimately, to me, the hard way means I'll, I'll put you down. What were the reputations of Bill Pogue and Conley Elms? Um, I never heard anything good about Bill Pogue, and I heard everything good of Conley Elms. I heard that Conley Elms was one of the nicest giants. He was a giant. He's a big man. He was one of the nicest giants of a man you could ever hope to meet. Everybody loved him. Everybody respected him. Um, the only people that I that I have heard talk good of Bill Polk was the media. Um, that uh, that he was uh, a professional. Um, I don't know. You know, uh, I I never met the man, so I can't say. I, and I never met Conley Elms, but the people that I know personally that knew Conley. Uh, I respect their opinion. And if they say Conley Elms was one of the best, then he was one of the best. Um, 
some people I know kind of offhand that had run in or, or knew Polk, not run in with him, but knew of him, didn't really have much good to say. And so that kind of fits with the narrative of, of what was supposedly happened now at the camp, that Connolly's off to the side and Bill Pogue is, is in this confrontation with Claude Dallas. So Connolly goes into the tent and is gathering up these bobcats, mm-hmm. which you know are, are going to be confiscated as evidence, as at, evidence. A, sure. at, at a minimum. Yep. Which is a normal thing to do in this situation. However, outside the tent, we've got this escalating conversation going on. And this is the giant question mark of what actually happened, which there's only one man alive today who knows. Right. Um, my father-in-law knew Claude Dallas, and he knew that he practiced drawing his weapon. He practiced a lot and said he was very fast. And he kind of fantasized that sure that that, that old west yep. trapper mountain man cowboy cowboy shoot, gunfighter shoot him up outlaw right you know laws don't apply to me you know the old west you know the old west that's I think he was you know into that but you can go down to that country and and you can find anybody anywhere that doesn't like the government yeah that doesn't you know that will will fight especially the federal government. So Claude Dallas was carrying a, uh, a Ruger Security 6, which is a, a revolver with a relatively short barrel, six-shot revolver. One of the things that I find curious about this is, you know, everybody that I know that works in the woods carries a gun. Right. I, I carry a gun all the time. Every time that I'm going in the woods, I've, I've got a gun with me. However, almost everyone that I know, and I mean... That's the smallest percentage of people that carry in the woods. They carry open. You know, your your gun is is visible and available. Available. And, and no matter yeah. what, a concealed gun is harder to get at than than an open carry gun. And it's by a, a fraction of a second mm-hmm. if you practice a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's it's not that big of a difference, but it is somewhat curious to me that that he was carrying concealed. Okay, let me ask you this. Do you know that he was carrying concealed? Is that hearsay? It's what I read. Yeah. It's what's in the report. Yeah. What I read is that they took two guns off of him. I know they did take a gun off of him. But and that the, was the twenty two trapping pistol? Rifle. Oh, really? Yep. Twenty two rifle? Yeah, lever action rifle. The Marlin? Yep. Okay. Um I'm just speculating here. I mean, like you said, only only Claude Dallas knows what happens. Jim Stevens would have known if how Claude packed that. I would say that if if it was concealed up at the rim, Claude Dallas had intentions to do wrong. If it was on his hip the whole time and it was not taken away, I would say he was provoked. Um, if... He was packed. It doesn't. It doesn't fit to me, like you say, for him to be packing concealed, especially a three fifty seven revolver. It's a chunky gun. It's. A, it's. I don't want to fall in the creek with it, man. You know. Yeah. It doesn't. Uh, doesn't just slither into your waistband. No, it like does a not. Sig P three sixty five or something. Especially you know? if you're trapping. If you're physical, you know, 
it's one thing if you're sitting at the you know desk or driving and you got one you know stuck in in your belt, but and concealed just means that it's covered by a garment, right? This thing could have been um, outside of his waist belt, but under a jacket yeah, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. But anyways, the next thing that happens is is the thing, right? Yeah. And nobody knows except Claude Dallas on who drew first. Um, Jim Stevens said that he heard you know, the argument, you know, you're going to go easy or you're going to go hard. And then the shots. Conley Elms was coming out of the tent with the Bobcats. And I believe that Claude Dallas shot Bill Pogue in the chest twice. And the story I heard, I don't know if this was in, if this was in Bill Stevens's testimony or Claude Dallas's, but Conley Elms packed his in a shoulder holster, which was covered up either with a coat, sweater, something. And as he was reaching for that, that's when Claude Dallas shot him. That's my understanding. That's what I've always believed at that point. And it's just such a tragedy that, that these two men are killed, that Claude Dallas's life went the way it did because it didn't have to. You know, um, if he hadn't shot Conley, would he have gotten off? You know? But I think the biggest thing, and I know I heard this from jurors, is that what really convinced them to convict on manslaughter was when, after he had shot both men, he went and got the Marlin twenty two and shot him behind the ear. And that was... Like- like they're a skunk in a trap. Like they're a dog. Yep. Like putting a dog down. And that, I think, changed everything. I can remember the trial and everybody was following as, you know, as I was. We were fairly remote. You didn't. It was tough to get, you know, TV reception there at the ranch and stuff. But or even if you had time, there was no recordings or anything like that at the time. But you, you, you tracked it and everybody was talking about it. And when that was mentioned members of the jury gasped and that was the difference right there I think in conviction and I've heard the second hand from one of the jurors that had he not done that then they would have called it self-defense agreed I heard the same thing now there's also an ethical aspect of this uh, which is going to sound coarse but there's also a reality that both these guys have been shot by a 357 at close range. He he could have made the assessment that both of them are going to die and that the the most humane thing that he could do was to go ahead and kill them with that 22 rifle. Now, that's not a good look if you're wanting to, to not get charged with murder, but he also didn't plan on getting caught. And some of his next actions really indicate that. So now we've got two dead game wardens lying in this camp. And Jim Stevens, who just brought some groceries out there, is like, no, I he's mean, in imagine the mix. what's going through yeah. his mind. Yeah, so like, much for I, hunting arrowheads. I, I'm, I'm a witness to this. Like, am I next? Sure. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, I think he even asked Claude. About that. He says, so are you going to kill me now? 
And I remember this was the talk around the ranch and the, the little community of denial where my in-laws had their ranch. My wife grew up is that Claude was shocked that Jim Stevens would think that he would shoot him. And so that throws a whole other thing into it. It's just like, well, if you wanted to eliminate all the witnesses, that would be the next step. If you were a cold-blooded killer, it really would. And that's what tells me that, that, that Claude Dallas was not a cold-blooded killer. I, like you said, this may sound callous, but getting shot with a three fifty seven in the chest or wherever, in the core, you're not, it's, it's not survivable, especially where you're at. And so... It doesn't take long for for somebody like Claude or me or probably even you to know that the most humane thing right now is to stop the suffering, to stop the hurt, to stop the pain. And the United States Veterinary Service says the number one most humane way to put an animal down is with a twenty two caliber shot to the brain. You know, I... I, I hesitate to say what I would do in a in a situation like that, right? Because it's so far outside of what the rest of my life. Of, yeah. Then you know, I'm I'm just not gonna say. Yeah. Uh, because there's no way to know. I like to think that my next actions would be to render aid. Yes, agreed. I I, I would agree, but I mean, you know, playing devil's advocate, I've put enough animals down that I cared about. Because I knew they weren't, their their injuries were not survivable, and I wanted to stop that pain. That's a hard thing to do. So yeah, so now lives have it's changed. You know, it's it's now now you're in the tornado. So now he gets Jim Stevens, who does not want to participate in this, to go hide the bodies. Yeah, they both go and hide the bodies. Um, and how they hit those bodies is creepy to me. Well, what's even creepier is they were, Conley Elms was a big man. And I think they tied it, they were going to tie him on the horses and, and go hide him. And they couldn't get Conley Elms' body up on the horse or the mule. And I think Claude Dallas mentioned that this was in Stevens's testimony that, well, we could quarter him. Eesh. You know, and that right there, Okay, now there's a side that, to even suggest that, um, makes you shiver. But then supposedly Claude says, well, I, I could never do that, so we got to do something different. And I think that's when they decided to put Conley Elms in the creek, in the river. And it might have even been the upper reaches of the Owyhee. I don't know. Put him in the river and then put hauled Pogue up. I think to a dry draw that had a big dirt bank and put him up underneath the bank and then kicked the the, the and, bank down on top of him. And a coyote den. Was it a coyote den? Yeah. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. That's not how anybody wants to end up. No. He's getting shot and shoved in a coyote shoved den. Shoved in a hole. My like goodness. That. So now Claude takes off and uh, he is on the run and is on the FBI most wanted list. It was a nationwide manhunt for 15 months. Yep. I remember the posters. They were everywhere. 
I mean, that's just crazy. That's not something that we see today as like wanted posters for somebody that got in a gunfight in the middle of the West. Somebody that you, not that I knew him, but I sure knew enough people that knew him, you know? It was the talk of every roping, every rodeo, every Brandon, every dance, you know? He was he was made into a hero. There was people cheering for him. How can we help? There were fundraisers to provide money for to somehow to get to him. Um, really? Oh yeah. There was there was. I remember that that seems illegal, right? That like <laughs> that that's aiding and abetting a fugitive. There was there was a potluck dance. I can remember it was a potluck dance in that Harney County country where you're you know, kidding. No, there was a couple of them. Um, yeah. Which really shows the attitude towards government of people in that area. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. And, you know, and a lot of people love a rebel. Mm-hmm. You know, we still see like, I still see t-shirts with Che Guevara on it. Sure. It's like, this is a bad guy. <laughs> well, but but for, for a lot of people, he represents rebellion. Yeah. I mean, just going to any college dorm. Oh my gosh. You know, it's probably the biggest selling flag in any college out there. Um, but yeah, so yeah, he was, uh, he become a folk hero. And then when they found him, when the FBI finally finds him, uh, there's another gunfight that breaks out mm-hmm. and a car chase, like car chase and, and a run across the desert. And, and, uh, I think he was in a, a little single white trailer out in the desert. And, uh, I don't remember how they found out where he was, but. They surrounded it, had a helicopter, Claude makes a run for it, he's shooting, they're shooting back, he gets shot in the foot, I think, in, when he gets in the car, and the helicopter's following him, he bails out of the rig, and he's running, he's hobbling out through the sagebrush desert, and the helicopter's there, and he fires on the helicopter, and I remember the, the helicopter pilot's comment was, he was a Vietnam combat pilot with uh, flying helicopters and he says when you can see that flash you know they're shooting right at you you're looking down the barrel and so the helicopter peeled away and then so everybody spread out across this sagebrush flat and they had walked past him and the guy that saw him happen to just stop and look back and he looked right into his eyes um, Claude was laying on the ground bellied in underneath sage rush or something and, and Claude says don't shoot don't shoot me supposedly and that was uh, that was his first capture so then he goes to trial in Caldwell Idaho yep yep so the the jurors are members of this community mm-hmm. and I think that you know for for crime that went into multiple states and stuff like that it's interesting that it did feel like he ended up with a jury of his peers. Yeah. And I know, I know the guy that provided the money for the defense. Really? Yeah. Hoyt Wilson of the Man Lake Ranch. Um, I knew Doc and Kokuiki, his, his, uh, Doc, you know, Wilson. I knew, uh, you know, Hoyt's folks. So well respected, all of them. Doc and Coco and Hoyt. I mean, some of the most respected people, not only in the, that, that desert community, but clear across Treasure Valley, 
And these are people that says, look, we'll provide, you know, the finances for your uh, defense. And I, and, I, and I think Hoyt was there every day through the trial. And that tells me a lot. That tells me that Claude wasn't the monster that everybody, that everybody, that the other side tried to make him out to be. I think if there was that in Claude Dallas, then the folks at Man Lake Ranch would have never have stepped up with that kind of support. I really do. And, and Claude spent a lot of time in that Man Lake, Alivore Desert country down through Denial, Paradise Valley into Nevada. Spent a lot of time there. Um, I can remember, I can remember Coco said whenever he come into the house, his hat always came off or in the presence of her. Might even be in the barn. If Coco walked into the barn and Claude was there, his hat always came off and he says, ma'am, to me that's not a evil, cold-blooded killer. And so... Oh, it's got manners anyhow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you've got, you've got all these different sides popping up on who is he? What happened? Why? You know? So, yeah. I think he was charged with murder, two counts of murder, first degree. But that's not what he was convicted of. Convicted of manslaughter, two counts. Uh, and what, 10, 10 years each? Right, initially. And uh, I read this in, in an article in the Lewiston Tribune, 10 years for, for each count uh, initially, but because the the crime was with a gun, they were able to give him higher sentences, which totaled out to 30 years. Uh, but the the manslaughter charges came with a $2,000 fine for each charge. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I didn't know about that. Wow. 2000 bucks. Uh, when I was in college, Bobcats were worth 600 to $1,200 a piece. I kind of went there myself. I thought, well, you know, hopefully you had enough. I wonder if you had enough Bobcat hides on the wall. You know, in the in the barn to to pay that pay that fine, huh? Yeah, yeah. odd. So he was uh, he was sentenced to thirty years, and was was serving that time in a prison outside of Cuna, Idaho. And on Easter Sunday, three years into his uh, his term, he escaped. Yeah. Now there's an official report about this that said that he was able to cut through the wire and escape like that. However, that report has largely been debunked. And Ada County actually opened an investigation in 2001 to look into how he actually escaped. And the current consensus is that he walked out the front door with a group of visitors. And to do that, you've got to have help. You've got to end up in a position to do that. Or complacency. Easter Sunday, might have had short staff. People were wishing that they were home. If that's the case, I think there's way too many people in that penitentiary that want out the same way. And they're always possibly looking for that. I don't think Claude Dallas was the only one that go, oh, wow, maybe I could just walk out of here. I think there was people that supported Claude Dallas that worked in the penitentiary and that set it up to help him get out. I don't, 
maybe he was ever, I mean, anybody that goes to prison, your life is a threat. But I would, I don't know if, I wouldn't think in the pen for killing two officers, your life was going to be a threat from the inmates. This, uh, this is coming straight out of the Idaho Statesman. The morning after, prison warden Arvin Arave, Arave I don't know, A-R-A-V-E, uh, showed off precisely cut triangles and two chain-link fences to reporters and photographers, contributing another iconic image to the Dallas repertoire. Everybody said they knew he was going to escape, he told the Los Angeles Times. Correction director Al Murphy also fed the mystique. You give Claude Dallas six miles, and you might as well give him the country. Oh, well, we'll find him. It might take a century, but we'll find him. So the thinking here is that he escaped easily, maybe with help. Maybe they're trying to cover that up, and they cut some holes in the fence to make it look like that's how he'd gotten out, yeah. to kind of cover themselves up, which is very, very, very possible. Like, right. you know, we don't want to take the blame for incompetence or for assistance, so we're going to make it look like he got a hold of some bolt cutters or something and was able to cut through the fence. Yep. Uh, really interesting. And then saying everybody knew that he was going to escape, like that's interesting too, right? Uh, the, the escape to me is, is almost as interesting as what went down at camp. You know, to me, they're just, I've always been intrigued on, on how he escaped. I, uh, I think there was help. I really do. Um, to, to be able to, if he can acquire bolt cutters, why hasn't somebody else acquired bolt cutters before that and done that to where, um, okay, we've got a, we've got a lack in, in our, you know, security here. Let's fix it to where that's not possible anymore. Just to go out and cut two holes, you know, and, and then, and then you're gone. Ah, I, I think there's people that, that help facilitate that escape. That's, and that's just my opinion, but yeah, he's on the run. So he's on the run. And now the legend of Claude Dallas has fire under it. It's got jet fuel, man. I mean, you, you talk about light up the uh, rumor mill. Holy shit. Cause we're really hitting on like every cylinder of, of this idea of, you know, an old West outlaw living in modern times, right? You've got, you've got him trapping and living off the land. You've got a six gun shootout. Cowboy, you, th- you, you know, throw him in jail. He breaks out of jail. Uh, everybody thinks that he's back out there in this big wild country where it'd be really easy to hide, be really easy to hide as long as you can tough it out. But then the, the mystique of it all kind of crumbles a little bit and a lot of people lost the respect that they had for him because he got captured. Now he's, he's top 10 most wanted in the country. Yep. Top 10 most wanted men in the country. And they find him in Riverside, California in a parking lot outside of a seven 11. Not that's tough. Doesn't fit. Doesn't, doesn't help. But talk about going someplace where they're not going to look for you. I mean, I wouldn't have looked in Southern California, you know. I heard he had long hair; it was basically unrecognizable to you know to the average person out there. And uh, and I had heard, of course, rumor 
but I'd heard that the only only reason they found him in Southern California is um, one of his friends turned him in, turned in his location. Um, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, now he's captured again. So he's captured again, and they send him to prison in Nebraska and then New Mexico, both high-security state prisons, then to Kansas. Uh, he completes his final three weeks of his sentence in Orofino, Idaho. And I love Orofino. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. One of my favorite wrestling tournaments in high school was in Orofino for a couple reasons. They had host families, which was always fun. Uh, you'd wrestle on a Friday, you'd weigh in that morning, and then you'd weigh in again Friday evening. So that meant you got to eat as much as you wanted to Saturday night. And the the mascot for Orofino, for the high school there, is uh, the Maniacs, the Orofino Maniacs. And there's an insane asylum on the hill right next to the school. And I know you guys want to cancel them just hearing that. But the school was there with that mascot first. Um, but there's also a prison there as well. And I remember in high school being there and, and uh, hearing that, that, that Claude Dallas was there at the same time. And, you know, that was something that was still being talked about, even though this had all happened before any of us were born. Yeah. And what's interesting, too, is that I don't think there was any more time tacked on to a sentence from the escape. Which is a normal, I think, a normal procedure that if you escape, hey, you get another five years or ten years, whatever it is. And I, I remember reading somewhere that it's odd that, okay, you escape, we got you, yeah, you got, uh, just finish out the rest of your term type of a deal without having any extra time tacked on. So maybe you had some leverage on one of those COs that potentially helped him escape. Maybe. He actually got released eight years early for good behavior. Mm-hmm. I heard that. It was a surprise. I remember I was surprised because I remember, you know, he, uh, it was like uh, 2010, 2012 when he was, you know, around the time that he was going to get out. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody's talking about it. Claude Dallas is out. Claude Dallas got released, you know, type of a deal. He's a free man. Served his sentence and he's, he's free man. And I expected him to go back to the desert, to the that cowboy desert country of, of Paradise Valley, Paradise Hill, that denial McDermott country. And I don't know if he ever did. Um, well, he was seen in Utah. He was seen in Alaska. I know he was, I know he was working in Alaska uh, for a couple of years. I knew that. But the word I've got is that he is back in the Owyhee Cowboyan. Okay. And so, let's see. He was born in 50, so he's 73, right? 73 years old. Yeah. Cowboyan. Oh, that's not an easy life. It's 73. Doesn't sound like much of his life has been easy. Yeah, no kidding. You know, initially when I started thinking about doing doing a show or a series of shows about Dallas, I thought that ultimately I would want to have him on the show mm-hmm. and, and hear his story. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I've heard, he doesn't want to talk about it. He, yeah. wa- he wants to leave that portion of his life behind. And the way I see it, whether this was self-defense or whether it was manslaughter, 
he's served his time at the at this point and and I'm I'm fully going to respect that and I'm not going to go dig him up um and and rip these scabs open. Yeah. However, I doubt that this that this gentleman is a is a podcast listener, but uh Claude if you're here in this show and you want to tell your side of it, I'll listen to you. I'd love to uh I hope he puts it down. I hope he maybe it's published posthumously, you know, after he's gone. His words, his thoughts, you know, from him himself be incredibly interesting. Uh to to get that perspective of what happened. And um but yeah, I uh, same thing. I know, I know folks that are in contact with him, um, and I've never asked them. Oh, wow, where's he at? Can I meet him? Any type of thing. I would love to meet the guy. I'd love to sit down and have a supper. You know, supper with him. Have a beer with him if he drinks. Scotch with him, or just visit and I suppose to satisfy some curiosity. I would never ask him of what happened, but just to see who he is, you know, what's he like? The, the folks that I know that, that are friends with him, man, they're friends of mine. So I'm just thinking, I think he could sit down here with us and have a great conversation. Um, but hard to say. And for now, we'll leave it with that. But uh, that's the story, as far as we know it, of Claude Dallas and the two men that he killed in 1981. His trial, his escape. And uh, the rumors of, of where he is today. Second escape, you know, the whole bit. Yeah. Yeah. And and he's paid his price. And I, I can remember the judge at sentencing said, for a man who has so prized his freedom, has now lost it for most of your life. And I thought that was, oof, that makes you think. True, true statement, very true statement. You know, tragic all the way around. Yep. Yep. And to, uh, you know, to the, the folks out there who are, who are living wild, don't let yourself get in this situation. And, and to the law enforcement officers who are out there trying to do their job, just uh, do what you got to do and come home at the end of the day. Yep. I don't, I don't ever want to see something like this happen again. Agreed. Agreed. All right, folks. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate your perspective and uh, that uh, that's our story. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you all very much for listening. I'm going to keep bringing you these stories from normal people just like you who have done extraordinary things. Everyone is an expert at something. And they have interesting perspectives on life and work and the environment and all the things that we care about. I'm going to keep bringing that to you. And I want to thank you so much for making this show possible. I also want to thank Emily Bratcher for producing this show. She does a great job editing. Really appreciate her. I want to thank John Chatelain. He did the art for the Six Ranch podcast. And Celia, soon-to-be Harlander, 
she digitized that so that we can get it out there on the internet for you. Also want to thank Justin Hay for writing this original music and the beautiful whistling that you're listening to right now. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. Please keep listening to the show. Write me a review if you feel like it. And just keep doing your thing and we'll all learn from this together. It's been fun and, you know, we're, we're just getting started. <laughs>